BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We hope to learn what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. I'm Adam Bristol. Indre is off this week. She'll be back next week. I wanted to record for you one of our up-to-date episodes. You may know that up-to-date episodes are where Indre and I like to highlight some recent scientific papers that we find particularly intriguing or thought-provoking. I want to describe to you three papers from recent weeks that really caught my eye. The first two will have us going deep into our evolutionary history of life on this planet, filling in some of the holes in the fossil record and making some unexpected discoveries along the way. And the third paper will have us looking into the future what could be distant future, but it could come earlier than expected with regards to Earth and humans' exploration of planets. Let's start with evolutionary history. I was particularly intrigued by a study that was published in the October 27th issue of Nature. It had to do with some of the holes in the fossil record from a particularly important time in the history of evolution on this planet, specifically the Cambrian explosion. This is a epoch that is roughly bookmarked 550 million years to say 480 million years ago. And it was a period of incredible speciation where entire phyla, which are animal groupings, were conceived during this time. Chordata, which is humans phyla, can trace its root back to the Cambrian explosion. One of the persistent mysteries of this time, though, is that there are some very widespread phyla that appear absent from the fossil record from the Cambrian times. And the article by Zhang et al. in this issue of Nature focused on one of those phyla, specifically a phyla known as bryozoa. Bryozoa roughly means moss animals, and that refers to the superficial resemblance of the colonies of these little small aquatic animals, how they kind of look like moss. Now, bryozoa, each individual, which is called a zooid, looks a bit like a small urn with a ring of tentacles at the top. As I mentioned, they form colonies, 
But within those colonies, individual zooids can have some specialized roles. Some can be involved in cleaning, some can be involved in reproduction, others can be involved in defense. Now, bryozoa of today can be found in saltwater, can be in freshwater, and there are roughly 6,500 species alive today. And when looking across the entire fossil record, there were some 15,000 species in bryozoa. But as I alluded to, one of the mysteries is that bryozoan fossils are not found in Cambrian times, which would be roughly 500 million years ago. That is, given their sort of proliferation, why can we not find any fossils that would have traced them back to this Cambrian explosion? And there are several lines of evidence that would strongly suggest that they should be there. One, of course, is that the fossil record, even going some 50 to 100 million years after the Cambrian explosion, showed evidence of some of these divisions of labor and more complex morphology, one of them being what is a skeleton, air quotes there, skeleton-like calcium carbonate minerals in the body walls, which is known to have evolved later in several species. And when you look at some of the molecular clock data, and molecular clock data refers to mutation rates in any biological molecules, that the molecular clock data would place bryozoa into the Cambrian era. And despite these lines of evidence, it is predicted they should be there, but they're the oldest known fossils that were found in China only put it about 480 million years ago, which is still more recent than the Cambrian explosion. But what this paper in Nature from October 27th discovered was it was the first identification of the oldest example of bryozoa that they termed Proto-Militian Gatehousei. All the evidence from the sample that they found in South China and also South Australia and some limestone puts these fossils squarely within a Cambrian time period. And with using some high-powered microscopy and looking at the traits of these bryozoa, they were clearly identified as bryozoans. But what's interesting is they had a few unique features that help explain why they haven't been part of the, the uh, fossil record up until this point. One is, is that their preservation was not by the mineralization of the calcium carbonate skeleton, which is more common for fossils of this uh, phyla. Rather, these particular specimens underwent what's called a secondary phosphatization, where high levels of phosphate, which are known to be uh, exist in Cambrian water sources, are the preservation mechanism here. And so missing the hard skeletal parts meant that the likelihood of fossilization of these Cambrian bryozoans was much less likely. But yet, looking for this secondary types of fossilization uh, uh, chemistry, they were able to identify them. And when they looked at scanning EM and CT scans, they found all the traits in terms of the single rows, the, the structures of the colonies, everything that would square up with all the traits that we know of bryozoa. But what's interesting is it appears as though they do not have any of the individual divisions of labor that make subtypes of zooids, given them specific roles. So again, this looks more like a, a less evolved form of bryozoans. So those were the two main features here. A, I always think it's cool when there is a predicted outcome that is yet to be discovered versus just 
finding something and trying to integrate it and explain it, but rather these fossils had been predicted based on what we knew about bryozoans. Now we've actually find those that conform to the predictions. So I thought that was really cool. Let's go to the next paper. And now we're going to be jumping about 300 million years into the future, going to the Cretaceous period, which I think most of us would be familiar with because that was the time of the dinosaurs. And the time of the dinosaurs was also another incredible period in evolutionary history, in particular as it comes to crabs. Yes, the crabs you may love to eat. Yes, the crabs that you're familiar seeing in all types of environments like uh, the intertidal zones on the beach. But it turns out that the Cretaceous period was also known as an era of the crab revolution when crabs diversified worldwide and the first modern crabs originated while many others disappeared. What was interesting about this new paper that came out in Science Advances uh, in late October 2021 by Javier Luc and others is that in very much a Jurassic Park style, they were able to obtain a Cretaceous period sample of amber that had preserved in it an entire specimen, fully complete, fully featured crab. So again, they had a piece of amber that had a full Cretaceous period crab inside it. So if you, if you caught my reference there, if you know Jurassic Park and Michael Crichton, there was this fascination of the possibility that prehistoric creatures or aspects of prehistoric life could be captured in bits of amber and then preserved for, you know, for all time. And it's amazing to see that, yes, in fact, that absolutely can and rarely, but it does happen. And so there are photos in this paper showing the specimen and that they found this specimen from what is now known as Myanmar uh, in 2015. And it was basically picked up by some gem dealers, made its way to a gemological museum, and then into the hands of these paleobiologists. So what was super cool about this paper, of course, if you look at it, you'll start to see just the photos of just the sample itself. But of course, once they do some of their um, microcomputer tomography type of imaging, they can make digital reconstructions of the entire body. And you see the details of its antenna. You see its large compound eyes, its mouth parts that have all these fine hairs and here's the kicker. While the crab superficially resembles what you'd think of as a shore crab that you might see today, although it's quite small, uh, it's only about uh, the, the leg diameter is only about five millimeters, so it's pretty small. But when you look at it, it had gills. Yes, gills, gills like fish, gills that allow this creature to breathe underwater. Now, this was a very unexpected finding. And it is true that it's been known that crabs have independently evolved gills and the, and the ability to live on land, brackish water, or freshwater at least 12 times since the Cretaceous era. But this new species that had been identified here in this piece of amber, which by the way, the authors call Cretapsara anthonata, which is actually a quite beautiful name if you understand the derivation of it. This one didn't have any specialized lung tissue that would suggest, at least from, its, from their initial analysis, would suggest that it would spend its time either 
above ground or in the water. That is, it could be, could it have been amphibious? It suggested that with well-developed gills, that this animal certainly wasn't completely land-dwelling, most likely spent its time as a marine crab. But then that raises another question. The types of preservation in amber species events that we get really come from land-dwelling creatures. That is, it's highly unusual for a, a water aquatic dwelling species to be preserved in amber. And so the question, of course, that the authors are trying to understand is, you know, how did this happen? And I don't think that they fully know. Their current thinking is that perhaps this was a semi-terrestrial juvenile crab that was in the process of migrating onto land from water as occurs in other species we know of today, specifically one called the Christmas Island red crab, where they have land-dwelling mother crabs that release their babies into the ocean, and then those juveniles later swim out of the water back onto land. So they hypothesize that perhaps when you find this crab in amber, it was in that process of migrating onto land. But Definitely check out this paper, the reconstructions of where the uh, gills are relative to the carapace to see all the fine details. It's really quite a marvel that this is even less likely than a needle in a haystack. I mean, this is really quite extraordinary. Again, this is in the October 20th issue of Science Advances in a paper that was called Crab in Amber Reveals an Early Colonization of Non-Marine Environments During the Cretaceous. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, let's move on to our third and final paper. This is a paper in the most recent issue of Bioscience, and it's called Planetary Biosecurity, Applying Invasion Science to Prevent Biological Contamination from Space Travel. Now, the authors here are making a cogent plea, in my opinion, to the space exploration and astrobiology communities 
to not ignore the longstanding area of biology called invasion science or invasion biology. The idea here being that as the space exploration agencies and somewhat private companies too around the globe are embarking on increasingly ambitious projects, including taking samples from celestial bodies like comets or planets or moons, bringing them back to Earth, sending probes to Mars or other planets. We need to be incredibly thoughtful about the potential of both forward contamination, that is bringing life from Earth to those other planets, and provocatively, the possibility of reverse contamination. Reverse contamination being bringing back something from another planet or another entity and bringing it back to Earth here. And the authors make a lot of really interesting points. The first is that the field of invasion biology, which has studied invasive species and the impact of those introductions onto those local ecosystems, that field has been going for decades. And they've come to some pretty important learnings and, and principles that the authors feel have not fully been integrated into the space exploration guidelines or really astrobiology in general. And they make a plea that this is misguided because for the one hand, if you think about where we're going to be exploring first, likely some high priority areas will be those planets or moons or what have you that are deemed to be potentially capable of supporting life. And therefore, they should be treated as high-risk systems that could either harbor life that could be brought back or could be particularly vulnerable and insular to contamination by Earth introductions. And this possibility is not just theoretical. I was surprised to read throughout this paper just the increasing number of examples where extremophile bacteria have been shown either to be able to exist in interplanetary environments like on the surface of the International Space Station or in the laboratory under conditions that would suggest that they can withstand or live uh, and thrive in areas like Mars. And by that, I mean, can they expose gamma radiation exposure, super low temperatures, low atmospheric pressures, things that would be similar to things like the Martian permafrost. And yes, indeed, there are bacteria that we have here on Earth today that should be capable of doing that, not the least of which could be, of course, selecting for extremophile bacterial bacteria in the course of simply doing our exploration. That is, could we select for novel species that could then uh, survive and thrive into those areas. Now, NASA and other space agencies have thought about this, or really going back to the 60s, and they continue to do, at least here in, at NASA, pretty rigorous decontamination protocols, but the authors argue that they may not be sufficient because there are examples of now of even some of these uh, decontamination procedures may be missing some extremophiles uh, and get, get past that. And so one of the things that they're calling for is a kind of collaborative public database of all known contamination events 
across different space agencies, and I would probably think other sectors too, uh, where contamination and decontamination is an issue, that would allow other nations now and in the future to have a, a, an extensive a list of things to look for, again, to help prevent possible forward contamination in the future. And this possibility of backwards contamination, while admittedly a highly unlikely event, is one that, again, could be extremely uh, damaging if it were to occur. That is the likelihood that some other planetary species or organism could survive a return trip and the environment here on Earth is unlikely, but is like we've heard in other uh, examples of this uh, podcast, the expected value of such a thing is potentially, uh, while it's extremely unlikely, if it's that grave of a potential disaster, then it's worth planning for, even if it's unlikely. We've talked about some major meteorite impacts on a previous episode here. I was surprised to learn that with regards to contamination, the theoretical risk uh, kind of may have already been turned into an actual risk. I didn't realize that there was an Israeli lunar lander that was carrying dormant tardigrades, uh, little water bear creatures, which I think uh, we've actually talked about in Inquiring Minds too, which again are these incredible species that are notorious for their ability to withstand harsh conditions like extreme desiccation, freezing temperatures, high doses of ionizing radiation. Well, we just basically spilled a whole bunch uh, onto the moon. And so we'll see how that goes. Uh, but uh, I, I bring that up only to say that these accidents can happen and uh, issues of contamination, as the authors point out, are in fact real. The authors also note that the biosecurity preparedness protocols for various constituents in the space exploration sector, well, they vary quite a lot. So that means that some groups, for example, if they're developing the spacecrafts, their focus is on the production of the technology and not thinking about biological contamination per se, which again could open the door to some interlopers that could travel you know, on that uh, spacecraft, where others with their bringing samples back to Earth are really interested primarily in the integrity of the samples and are not really focused on potential biological contamination or microorganisms on the, the device or hardware itself. And so they actually in the paper, they show a number of photographs, including a photograph of individuals who are doing a preparation for a retrieval of a downed uh, biological sample from orbit. And none of those individuals really are protected in any way uh, with biohazard suits. And so it's really just kind of out there in the wilderness. And I think they kind of make the case that we need to uh, add a little more rigor uh, when it comes to the, the potential issues of both forward and backwards uh, or reverse contamination. They ultimately put forward a proposal to COSPAR, and COSPAR stands as the Committee on Space Research Planetary Protection, what they refer to as a Donald Rumsfeld approach. Some of you may remember uh, Secretary of Defense under the uh, George W. Bush presidency here in the United States, that a Rumsfeld approach to risk assessment would acknowledge that there are known knowns, there are known unknowns, and there are, of course, 
unknown unknowns. And I do agree that when it comes to biosecurity principles focused on these threats of contamination, that's a pretty good way of putting it. So that's it for another episode. Thank you very much for listening. Indre will be back next week. And if you want to hear more from us, please do subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash inquiring minds. I'd like to thank all of our Patreon subscribers, in particular, David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galhul, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stephen Meyer Ewald, and Charles Lyle. Thank you all very much. Your support makes this show possible. This episode was edited by the inimitable Daniel Link. I'm your host for today, Adam Bristol. Thank you again, and we'll talk to you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.